So good morning, everyone. It's good to be here with you today. And I suppose it's as good a day as any to cut some preaching teeth. But let me start off by saying thank you, Pastor Steve, thank you to the elders, and thank you to you, my brothers and sisters, for allowing me to preach the Word of God today. It's, it's a peculiar day. I mean, I, I sit here from a pulpit, and I, I, I'm, I'm in awe, right? Anyway, it's a surreal moment for me. And in the lead up to this day, I've been struck with a flurry of emotions that have coursed through my veins day in and day out. I've been caught with excitement, anxiety, fear, apprehension, nervousness, because honestly, guys, this is not easy for me to do. I remember telling God about 17 years ago that there were a number of things I wouldn't do, and this was one of them. I, I came forward in, in my newness of faith and said, Lord, here are my conditions. <laughs> and I hear those laughs out there, because you know how it turns out. It produces interesting results. Now, truth be told, I, I came to God and I said, Lord, I'm, I'm not going to do this because of, of, a, of a memory I carried with me from grade six. All right? So in grade six, I was voluntold that I would do public speaking. Now, I'm going to time out for a second. There's two things in my life that I really struggle with, flying and public speaking, and I'd rather be on a plane today, to be honest. <laughs> so I was voluntold in grade six that I would do some public speaking, and so I picked tiger sharks, and to this day, I still hate tiger sharks. <laughs> so I researched, I investigated, and I had to memorize a 15-minute speech to give to the entire student body. And so the day came, I had my speech memorized, I walked out on stage, and I was like a deer in headlights, let me tell you. I was not, it just was not happening. I opened my mouth, and nothing came out. So I think I'm doing a little better today. <laughs> and so if I can be honest, I feel like I'm reliving that moment right now, right? Again, when faced with the uncomfortable, I'm gripped with anxiety, fear, and apprehension. And I think today's passage is kind of fitting to when we examine those emotions. So today we're going to look at a guy named Zacchaeus, as Pastor Steve had read, and his encounter with Jesus. Now, no doubt Zacchaeus was an interesting character, one who carried with him fear, shame, and guilt. He was a pretty rotten guy. And as I reflected upon this Zacchaeus guy and the fallout of his life choices, I was reminded of Psalm 139. Now, Psalm 139 is a petition, it's a prayer before God that King David writes, and he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And you know what? I can, I can really relate with that prayer. I really can. And for Zacchaeus, as we'll soon see, man, I can only imagine what it must have been like for God to know his heart and for him to lay it bare before maybe 5,000 people. And I think we can relate more than we care to admit with Zacchaeus. If we truly sit down and we ask God to know our heart and then look at who Zacchaeus is, I think we'll find more in common than we care to admit. Now, whether you're searching or you're new in the faith or even walking with the Lord for quite some time, we all have at one point, in a, one point or another in, in some way, shape, or form experienced the same lostness that Zacchaeus had experienced. And at the end of the day, I very much want you to see this great passion that God has to seek out and save the lost. And so I've called this sermon 14 Words That Have Changed the World. And as Pastor Steve said, uh, verse 10 kind of, that's, that's where yeah, the sermon comes from. So now if you have time to read the Gospel of Luke from cover to cover, this account, particularly verse 10, 
might serve as this mini crescendo in Jesus' ministry. For me, it's a kind of hold your breath type of passage. It's like when you're watching a movie, right? When you're watching an action movie and the tempo is slow at the beginning, the plot is unfolding, and then as the movie progresses, it gets to the climax, there's explosions going on left, right, and center, and then this huge plot twist happens, and you're like, whoa, I was not expecting that. For me, verse 10, that's what it does for me. And, and along with verse 10, there's a couple of other mini crescendos in scripture that I hold my breath to. Let me just name a few. So when we read of Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt in the, in the Exodus, he's leading two million people out from slavery, out from bondage, and he comes before the Red Sea. And they're like, sweet, we've, we've left, we're gone, we have our freedom, but here's this sea, this impassable sea standing before them. And coming from behind them is the Egyptian army in all of its ferocity, coming to plow them down and to take every one of their lives to absolutely slaughter them. And so you can imagine the anxiety that they must have felt, thinking, you know, guys, this is it, we're done. And so Moses raises his staff, cries out to God, and the Red Sea parts, right? Like, man. And then as Pastor Steve will preach in a couple of weeks, Jesus was in this conversation, a, a deeply debated conversation with his fellow Jews about his identity, about his divinity. And they're having this argument they're saying, well, surely, how can you know who Abraham is? You're not even 50 years old. And then you can imagine Jesus quietening the crowd, raising his hands and quieting them and saying, before Abraham was, I am. Now, in modern day terms, that's like a biblical mic drop. I, I wish I had a, a mic here. But when we read about Zacchaeus, though, we see Jesus' divine mission on display. We see God seeking out and saving the lost. It's a glorious demonstration of God's grace, mercy, and love at its finest. Not only considered a sinner, but being a class of his own, Zacchaeus enjoys an audience with God. For those who were there, this was undoubtedly a tragic mistake. After all, how could a popular rabbi, one who fully understood the strict religious and moral laws of the first century, insist on spending time with such a notorious sinner? Guys, this was unheard of. This did not happen in that day and age, ever. But Jesus wasn't just a rabbi. He wasn't just lodging for the sake of lodging. He wasn't just passing through Jericho. Nothing just happened for the sake of happening. Passing through Jericho, meeting Zacchaeus, and dwelling in his family's house was intentional. So why did Luke include it? Why did Luke include this random encounter in a random town like Jericho? Let me put it this way. Jesus came to save the lost, the downtrodden, the outcasts, the tax collectors, the sinners, the marginalized, and the Gentiles. And this passage highlights just that. What's more, none of this is random. Tradition holds that Luke was a doctor, and because of his profession, he was very meticulous in what he wrote. Besides this, Luke himself tells us that Christ's encounter with Zacchaeus and Jericho is not random at all. At the onset of the gospel, when you read in the opening chapter of the gospel, Luke unequivocally tells us that it seemed good for him to compile a narrative of the events that had been fulfilled and to be certain about these events. So from chapter 1 to chapter 24, Luke sets out to write about actual events. Luke writes his gospel to a real person about a real event with then living people in an actual town. Jesus happened, Zacchaeus happened, Jericho happened. Now, guys, this is a dangerous claim, okay? Because if Luke got it wrong, we have it wrong, and we believe in a gospel built upon a lie. 
Secondly, Luke wrote to a real person, and this is far too important to discredit. All right, so I'm going to go Dr. Seuss on you for a second here, okay? So if you guys haven't read up on your Dr. Seuss in a while, uh, you know what, I can't do it justice. But who this person is, who, lo- who, who, Luke, who Luke wrote to is important because who he is is who we are. Got that? So who Luke wrote, I'd say I did it again. Who Luke wrote to is important because who he is is who we are. Clear as mud? So Luke wrote to a person named Theophilus, and Theophilus was a Gentile. And so for those who don't know, in the first century, Gentiles are considered anyone that's not a Jew, all right? And that's my point. We too are Gentiles. Now consider this, okay? So Luke goes through great pains to emphasize the Gentileness of his gospel. In Colossians 4, it's wrote that Luke is himself a Gentile, and who better to write a gospel to the Gentiles than for a Gentile? At our Christmas Eve service last year, Brother Jeff preached and explained on this prophecy that a guy named Simeon had given to Christ, and he said that he would be a light to the Gentiles. That's Luke uh, 2. Immediately after Jesus' death in Luke 23, it is a Gentile who is recorded as praising God. And after his resurrection, Luke 24, Jesus sends out his disciples to preach the gospel in all nations. The appeal to Gentile readers is far too important to ignore when we consider and approach Luke's gospel. And so at the beginning of chapter 19, we read that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. But this, guys, this begs the question, why? Why was he passing through? This one little seemingly insignificant verse, one verse, is so overly relevant to Jesus' mission. And not only that, his journey towards Jerusalem. Remember, guys, nothing is random, right? Luke was very meticulous in what he wrote about. Now, up to this point, Jesus had been traveling through the Judean countryside, making his way towards Jerusalem. He was teaching, healing, and proclaiming the good news of God. And yet, while near Jericho in Luke 18, he pulls his disciples aside and tells them that he will be rejected, put to death, and resurrected in Jerusalem. So it's only rational to conclude, then, that what takes place in Jericho is related to, in some way, shape, or form, what's going to happen in Jerusalem. There is a divine mandate happening here. I'll come back to that in a second. But first, let's unpack this Zacchaeus guy. So in, in verse 2, we, we're introduced to, Z- to Zacchaeus, and he's pretty central to this whole divine, divine mandate thing. The last thing I want to do, though, is inject us into the text, okay? This text isn't about us. It's about Zacchaeus and Jesus. Zacchaeus isn't a metaphor for us. It's not a metaphor for Calvary. It's not a metaphor for Canada. It's about Zacchaeus and his interaction with Jesus. Much in the same way that Goliath, in the story of David and Goliath, he's not a metaphor for your financial troubles or your marriage troubles or your car troubles or your, that your dog broke his leg, right? It's, it's an actual story written about actual people, but this is important. When we read this account, we see truths about us and, more importantly, truths about God. When Luke introduces Zacchaeus, he he uses an imperative, or better known as a command. He just doesn't passively say, puts his hands in his pockets and kicks like, hey guys, here's Zacchaeus. No, no, he uses the word behold, and this is important. By using behold, he's drawing attention to this person. It's like he's saying, hey Theophilus, I've brought you on this journey with Jesus at a 30,000 foot view, right? But now I'm gonna bring you down to 10 feet. That's what it would be like for a first century reader reading the word behold. It would have causing the tune in. It'd be like Pastor Steve, right? Getting up and leaving and me continuing preaching. And then he comes in and I say, behold, 
Pastor Steve has entered the, like you'd all stop, right? You'd all turn around and be like, what is on the go? That's what it'd be like. We'd all turn around and look at Steve. Luke ultimately wants his reader to be like, man, something big is going to happen. And so we also learn that Zacchaeus was a tax collector, but he was no normal tax collector. No, no, Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector, as Pastor Steve had read. And so what's the relevance, right? All right, let me, let me paint this picture for you. This is how one commentator described a chief tax collector in the first century. The term chief tax collector highlights the fact that Zacchaeus was either the head of a group of partners who joined together to obtain a contract to collect taxes, he was the sole owner of the contract, or he was someone hired by the partners to supervise the operation. So, in other words, Zacchaeus, he was bad news bears. He himself, being a Jew, conspired with the Romans, the occupying foreign Romans, to collect taxes from his fellow countrymen. Not only was he responsible for collecting taxes, but he, he also added his percentage on top, accepted bribes, committed fraud, and not only extorted his fellow countrymen, but he would extort the extorters. Guys, he was the worst. He definitely wasn't liked in Jericho. Much like now, tax collectors, they're not popular people. I'm sorry if there's tax collectors here. Um, <laughs> all right, so imagine this, okay? Imagine having to pay into income tax and then having the tax man say, I'm going to add 25% on top, right? Like, we'd be livid. But check this out, okay? So what Zacchaeus would have done, it would have been like, let's say the CRA is like, you know, I'm going to add 25% on top, and you know what? You're also going to pay an additional 25% to the occupying foreign government as well. You know, that, that government that you so love, that you would do anything for, yeah, those guys. We're going we're gonna to add 25% on top. Now, listen, listen, okay? I understand you're not in good financial position. We all are. Our bank account is being hit. I'm feeling it. I know people who are feeling it. Times are tough. But listen, if you can't afford that second 25%, maybe there's some sort of, ag of an agreement we can come to. I mean, guys, this is probably not too far from the truth. The worst. Now look at your Bible, verse 3 and 4. We read that Zacchaeus was no doubt a man on a mission. Who was this Jesus character, he might have asked himself. Luke doesn't tell us why Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, only that he did. It's not hard to imagine, though, that living a life as a chief tax collector, he would have been ostracized, treated with contempt, and hated. The worst. But hearing, though, we read back in Luke 4, that Jesus received sinners and tax collectors. Now, that might have piqued his curiosity. I mean, the Gospel of Matthew itself, written by a tax collector, right, Jesus welcomed into his inner circle the worst of the worst. You don't, if, you're, if you're a rabbi, you don't bring in tax collectors to your inner circle. You just you don't. It, just, it doesn't happen. And so it's not hard to imagine, though, that maybe both Zacchaeus and Matthew would have known each other. They were both tax collectors. And it's certainly not out of the, out of the realm of possibility that Matthew, after encountering Jesus, went and told Zacchaeus about this Jesus person. But between Jesus and Zacchaeus was a crowd. In all his might, effort, and self-reliance, Zacchaeus ran ahead of the crowd, climbed up into that sycamore tree. Now think about that for a second, right? In his own strength, Zacchaeus did what he could do to see Jesus. He, hid in the, sorry, he ran ahead of the crowd, he climbed the sycamore tree, and he hid amongst its branches. He wanted to see Jesus on his own terms. And I often wonder how many people around me feel this way as well. 
like you need to do X, Y, and Z to be right before approaching Jesus. For the believer, and I'm preaching to myself here, there's that one sin you absolutely struggle with. There's that one sin that after falling into it, you feel for a time unworthy to bend the knee to Christ and confess your sin. As if you need to sort out your emotions before approaching him. And to the unbeliever, there's that past event or the temptation or that uncertainty or that general lack of care as if somehow your circumstance is far too great for God to overcome. You feel you need to do X, Y, and Z before praying to him as if your life is too complicated for him to deal with. Isn't that interesting though? Zacchaeus hid himself amongst the branches of a sycamore tree. Adam and Eve, after sinning, hid themselves amongst the trees in the garden. Zacchaeus, in his sin, put himself in that tree. That's an interesting parallel. But to both Adam and Eve and Zacchaeus, God called them out of hiding and into the light. That is what sin does to us. It drives us into darkness. Sin, while pleasurable, still robs us from our innocence and instead shackles us with guilt and shame. But my friends, Jesus comes and calls us out of the darkness and into his light. This light which shines so brightly from the cross does not rob us, but it fills us with joy that cannot be measured. Amen? But here's the beauty of it all. Despite his junk and garbage, it was Jesus who was seeking after Zacchaeus. Now Zacchaeus might have had some generic idea about where Jesus would travel once inside Jericho, but the text never discloses his path. I mean, let's think about this for a second, okay? Consider how hard it might have been to pinpoint the exact path that Jesus would take. Jesus had a crowd with him whenever he traveled. A few chapters early, we read in, in chapter 9 that he had 5,000 people with him. He fed the 5,000. He was a pretty popular guy. And if you know anything about how crowd movement works, know that it's not straightforward. But generally speaking, a human will naturally and subconsciously move away from the area that's the most dense to the area with the least density. We don't like being cramped up. That is, unless someone or something has captivated our attention. The environment would have been hectic. It would have been loud. And I imagine there could have been pushing and excitement and curiosity like waves in an ocean. The crowd would have moved in a different direction if it could. But it didn't. Somehow, in some way, Zacchaeus was in the perfect path. Now look at your Bible, verse 5. When Jesus came to that place, he looked up. Notice how Luke records that it was Jesus who came to that place. The crowd was moving in step with Christ. Their attention was captivated. The crowd was following Jesus. He directed the movement of the group, and he controlled the direct direction that he needed to go. Ultimately, this was to Jerusalem, but for now, his sights were on Zacchaeus. And when he saw him, he called Zacchaeus by name. Guys, do you know how crazy that is? Zacchaeus was a sinner in a class of his own, and yet Jesus called him by name. Now, all right, listen, I'm almost certain that all of you have grown up with a parental figure in your life. I'm positive that all of you have been conceived and born of a woman. And I'm sure that each of you at some point in your life have endured the discipline of your parents. If you're like me, you would have been disciplined a lot. <laughs> if you're like me, then you're very familiar with your mother or your father calling out your name in only a way that your parents could do when you were in trouble. 
Matthew, Frederick, Leahy. See, I hear those laughs. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's power in a name, guys. And when you hear your name, you stop dead in your tracks. Despite his moral code and his reputation and his standing in society, Jesus called Zacchaeus by name. And at this point, as he was hiding in his little perch, surrounded by the, the comfort of the, of the sycamore branches, he might have thought to himself, uh-oh, uh-oh. The crowd would have been stunned. You would have heard a pin drop. All eyes, and I mean all eyes, were now upon Zacchaeus. Look at the text. Jesus said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. Jesus didn't say why it was necessary, only that it was. He didn't say, you know, Zacchaeus, if you'd have me, I'd really like to come over for a couple hours. No, he said, it is necessary. So in response, Zacchaeus came down, welcomed him joyfully, and outwardly professed his desire to repent, verse 8. Again, look at your Bibles. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. Can you imagine being Zacchaeus and hearing this? For a dude who was the worst of the worst, salvation came to his house. Right? Head explosion. Not only did salvation come, but it came today. In Luke's gospel, today is important. In most instances, it is used in conjunction with salvation or Jesus' journey to the cross. For Jesus, salvation from sin or being saved from your sins isn't a future event waiting to be obtained tomorrow. No, my friends, Jesus said today. Consider this. Luke 2, the angel declared that to you is born today a Savior who is Christ the Lord. While teaching in the synagogue, Jesus boldly proclaimed that today the scripture has been fulfilled amongst your hearing. Luke 5, after witnessing many miraculous acts, the crowd praised God saying, we have seen incredible things today. In commenting on his divine mission, Jesus affirms that today, tomorrow, and the next day, it is necessary for me to continue my journey. And finally, as he bore the sins of the world on the cross, he turned to the uh, thief being executed with him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. The reality of God's saving power was well and truly active yesterday, as it is today, as it is tomorrow, as it will be next month, next year, and for the next who knows how many years. As one commenter highlights, these today's statements not merely describe things already in place, they generate new realities based on the transformative power of Jesus' word. Several times elsewhere in the narrative, Jesus is shown as one able to heal and transform by merely speaking a word. Likewise, in these cases, Jesus speaks a word of salvation today that has the power to generate divine redemption for the oppressed, the tax collector, and a thief. The result portrays Jesus as a bearer of God's word, who by merely speaking is able to generate life. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. And this, my friends, is what I believe to be one of the most profound pieces of scripture in all of the Bible. 
This is nothing short of amazing. The answer to why it was necessary for Jesus to stay at Zacchaeus' house is found here. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Jesus was on a specific journey and with very specific goals. Make no mistake, make no mistake, Jesus was resolute on his intentions. Nothing would stop him on his way to Zacchaeus and nothing would stop him on his way to the cross. Jericho was of divine significance. It was a foreshadowing of what was to come. Now listen, Jesus came to do for Zacchaeus what he would ultimately do for mankind at the cross. This is why he entered Jericho. And my friends, this is the gospel. Christ came to seek and save the lost. At the cross, Jesus would pay the penalty for our sins. At the cross, Jesus would lay down his life for you and I. At the cross, the wrath of God would be satisfied. At the cross, an innocent man would hang, breathing his last and making all things new. Guys, can I get an amen for that? Thank you. My whole sermon builds this one verse. And in good old Baptist fashion, I'll give you some bullet points. Although there's no bullet points, so... God and God alone is the one who seeks and saves. In the pantheon of gods across all of time, we see impersonal gods, we see gods who don't care, we see gods who are self-seeking, we see gods who are indifferent, distant, and unapproachable. But look at the text, guys. God himself has come to seek and save the lost. Sin has existed since the beginning of time. All it took was one sin to separate Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve from God. One sin made them lost. They knew what they had done and now weren't sure of what to do or where to go. They were lost and without direction. Their sin destroyed the fabric of their relationship with God. Sin is destructive. Oh, but grace abounds. Praise God that he is not impersonal. He, gained, he came down into our mess. He got his hands dirty. He went through the trenches and he paid the ultimate price for you and I. Now Calvary, hear me. God hasn't stopped seeking and saving. Every one of you is a testimony of his goodness, his mercy, and his grace. Even today, even this very day, even in this very church, God is actively seeking and saving the lost. My second point, we all like sheep have gone astray. And I found it really peculiar that we read that in, in Psalm, I don't know, I can't remember what the Psalm was now. Jane, you'll have to help me later on. And anyway, it's a harsh reality, no doubt. Like sheep who have gone astray and without direction or guidance, there are people who are lost. I mean, the great old hymn, Amazing Grace, which most of you should know, and I'm not going to sing lest I never be invited back again, says, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was lost. The author knew he was lost. And this begs the question, what does it mean to be lost? We're all lost. All of us. At least some of us have been found. As simply as possible, to be lost is to be walking around aimlessly without hope without direction, without light. Sin is the greatest blinder of our path. Sin prevents us from seeing clearly and it gets in the way of our relationship with God. But my friends, that's not where it stops. God is not content with this reality. 
If we just, if we take a second to flip back to the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 34, uh, it's not on the screen, there's a whole lot of text, but we read of a conversation between God and the shepherds of Israel over the care and attention of his flock. You see, God had appointed individuals to look after his sheep, and he's frustrated with the lack of care and attention that his sheep are receiving. Now, unlike when I said earlier, Zacchaeus is not a metaphor for us, sheep in this instance, is a definite metaphor for his flock and his children. God observes that these people aren't doing their job, and so in a most unexpected way, he makes a series of claims that really no one saw coming. In essence, God rolls up his sleeves and does things his way. Now because, like I said, there's too much text to read, I just want to highlight a pattern that brings me great joy and reassurance. Again, God recognizes that his flock has been scattered across the face of the earth, that they have gone astray, they have no direction. And in response, God says the following, I will rescue my flock. I will search for my flock. I will look for my flock. I will rescue them. I will bring them out. I will shepherd them. I will tend to them. I will let them lie down. I will seek the lost. And yet Jesus, our great shepherd, said in verse 10, I have come to seek and save the lost. Much like ourselves, Zacchaeus was lost, but salvation salvation found him. And what did he do with it? When Jesus told him that salvation had come to his house, what did he do with it? Flip back to verse 8. We see what is called the great repentance of Zacchaeus. And remember in verse 10, Jesus said that I have come to seek and save the lost. It's only natural to conclude then that Zacchaeus was in fact a sinner who needed to be saved and was lost. When he was found, he repented. You cannot... Calvary, you cannot encounter the living God and not be changed. Moses was changed, David was changed, Paul was changed, and Zacchaeus was changed. Luke's entire gospel is driven by God's intent to forgive and reconcile, and Jesus' initiative with this tax collector puts that on display. On display was his divine mission and his great love and his passion to seek his lost children. And this is the point, guys, okay? Although disdained by society and judged to be beyond the pale of hope, salvation came. No one, and I mean no one, is too far from God. Salvation is here, and salvation is now. We too, like Zacchaeus, are lost. We too, like Zacchaeus, have baggage and sin and garbage to work through. We too, like Zacchaeus, need a savior. God said that he would seek the lost, He would rescue them, he would shepherd them, he would search for them, he would bring them out, and he would attend to them. He has, he will, and he does. But to you, oh Christian, be encouraged and be inspired. You have been saved out of darkness and you now walk in the light. You have been adopted into a family of billions past, present, and future. And you will stand before the Lord of Lords with brothers and sisters from eternity past and future, from every tribe, tongue, and nation, praising him who is worthy. 
And as you ponder this reality, I'll leave you with a quote from David Platt. Let us believe deeply in the sovereign God of the universe who holds the destiny of our world and our lives in the palm of his hand. Let us see the hopeless state of man apart from, before God, apart from Christ, and let us lead our churches to pray, to give, and to go to all peoples with the greatest news in all of the world. We have been saved by a graciously, globally, gloriously particular sacrifice. So let us lead our churches and let us give our lives for the advancement of Christ's kingdom and the accomplishment of Christ's commission. And let us not stop until the slaughtered Lamb of God and sovereign Lord of all receives a full reward for his sufferings. Christ has come to save the lost, the downtrodden, the outcasts, the marginalized, the sinner, you, me, them, and us. Salvation is here. Salvation is now. Today. Let us pray. Father, your grace and mercy are too much for me to comprehend. How far and how wide and how deep is your love. We praise you, O Lord, my God, that you don't hold back, that you don't sit by the wayside. Jesus, thank you for your obedience, for your obedience to death, even death on a cross, that we might have life and life abundantly in you. Praise be to you, Lord. Praise be to you. Amen.